Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Morning. Very nice to see you all. Hope you are well. Uh, actually, today is uh, my and Meta's two years anniversary. I think it's two years ago that we came to Christchurch London. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Of course, we had no idea what we got into, <laughs> but it's actually amazing. It's been amazing two years. I was just thinking about it sitting there. It was two years ago that we came in here not knowing at all what this was about, what was about to happen, uh, and it's been really an exciting journey ever since. So if you are here for the first time, just come and speak to us afterwards. We can give you all the good advice that you really need to, <laughs> to survive here. Um, it's, it's really a, a privilege to, um, to be allowed to conclude our series on David. And I have chosen a title that goes like this, The Joy of an Undivided Heart. Uh, and I have name-dropped this title a couple of times over the, the last couple of weeks, and I have kind of had the same reaction every time, and it's been like, oh, that sounds interesting. I really want to hear that talk. Of course, I don't know what they will say after having heard the talk, but... Uh, and, and somehow there was something in this, this title that spoke to myself, actually, which was, of course, why I chose it. There's something about the undivided heart that attracts our attention. And I think uh, most of us, we kind of know that a majority of our battles, struggles on the inside is because of a state of having a divided heart being divided in the way that we relate to ourselves, being divided in the way that we relate to God, and being divided in the way that we relate to other people. It takes so much energy. And it's almost by instinct we know that if I can get to a place of having an undivided heart, that must be a really joyful place. And trust me, it is. And the good news is that by the end of this service, we will all walk away with completely undivided hearts. <laughs> At least we can hope and pray, right? Uh, how did I come to this headline? Well, it was actually by exploring a question, which was simply, why David? Why did he get to have such a spectacular life? Why did he had, how did he become the father of Jesus through his lineage, the role model of Jesus, the signpost of Jesus? How come? Why him? And of course, he had a lot of um, talents and so on and so forth, but a lot of other people would have that in Israel at that day. From a traditional and political point of view, there would have been many others in Israel who would have been far more obvious choices. So why David? Why did he get to experience all of the things that he experienced? And I think we get a clue when it comes to the answer reading in Acts chapter 13, which is the text for the day. It goes like this, that after removing Saul, he made David the king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. There was something about David's heart that caught the attention of God. That was the primary thing that God was looking for. 
And of course, we need to ask the question, so what was that? What was going on in David's heart that really caught the attention of God, that not only caught it, but that it was something that God had been looking for and found in him? So I've kind of been reading through the Psalms of David, uh, of David in search for, for the answer to that question. And the conclusion I have arrived at, and of course you're welcome to agree or disagree, but it's very simple. But I think it carries with it a potentially important message to us. My conclusion was that the, the default mode of David's heart was to return to a place of fully surrendering to God. No matter what happened throughout his life, no matter changing circumstances, no matter how much he really blew it from time to time, with severe consequences for himself and his family and the people, he kept returning to a place of surrender. He never gave up on himself, he never gave up on God, and he never gave up on life. He kept returning to a place of fully surrendering to God. And of course, for some of us, just the word surrender may have a negative meaning. Uh, some of us would even think about all the movies that we have seen, uh, people being held at gunpoint and kind of surrendering to a wicked guy or girl. Um, but of course, there's also a very positive meaning to this word, surrender. And when I was reflecting on it, I, I came to think about um, a very positive example from my own life. I was nearly 18. Uh, and I was on a New Year's camp with a lot of other young people. I was, of course, a very handsome, strong, clever, <laughs> single guy on the lookout for the only one. And I had done my due diligence, so uh, I kind of knew that this camp wouldn't be a romantic highlight for me. I was a very critical young man, too. So I was sitting there at the dinner table and... Uh, a bit depressed over that fact, but then there were some people coming late into the room, and Mira, my wife, was one of those people. And I still remember that moment when she stepped into that room. I could describe the whole scenery. I'm not going to do that. Don't worry. But it was as if my world simply stood still. And it actually doesn't only happen in movies. I did fall in love right there and right then. Simply. I just saw her. And I was completely sold out. Is that an expression? Great. That was how I felt. And um, I was actually a quite shy and introvert kind of guy, but I, I changed, I transformed and became an extrovert monster. Uh, <laughs> just going for her. Because I realized that there were other guys who had discovered her as well. So I was just like, <laughs> I want to get that girl. And to cut a... Yeah, actually a short story shorter. Uh, in a few weeks, <laughs> within a few weeks, uh, we exchanged letters, real letters with stamps and everything. And I declared my love, and I was a bit of a nerd, so I did it in Latin, of course. <laughs> and advice to you single guys, don't do that. <laughs> it's a bad idea. <laughs> but she was very gracious, uh, and... Uh, accepted my invitation for our first date. And I remember my preparations for that first date. I booked that restaurant at the best, a table at the best restaurant I could find. And I cashed in all the money that I had saved and I brought it all, everything with me, ready to happily spend it all. All of my emotions were totally invested, of course. 
and I could hardly think about everything. Every part of me was totally integrated and involved, surrendered to this person, Mette. And now, this is of course a little more than 10 years ago. <laughs> Why are you laughing, David? <laughs> of course, life is different, but bottom line is kind of the same. Bottom line of the relationship is the same. What started as an emotional response needed to develop into a lifestyle of choices to surrender to one another. This choice that there is no one else. There's no alternative. There's no plan B. There's just this one. As soon as I have chosen this person, that is the only romantic relationship that I'm ever going to have in this life. It was a joyful surrender, but you actually have to keep living out that surrender in your life. We have three children now. We even have a grandchild. We have common interests and common passions. But that's really not what carries our relationship. The surrendering to one another is actually what carries a marriage. You look very serious now. <laughs> well, of course it is very serious. It's actually true. I really believe it to be true. Actually, it seems like we were created to live in those kind of relationships. I'm not talking especially about romantic relationships. But it seems like we were created to live a life of surrender. Wilfred Stinnesen, who was a Camelite monk and lived most of his life in a monastery in Sweden, and who is an absolutely amazing author, philosopher, and theologian, he speaks about this desire to surrender, and he says it comes from our uh, creation DNA. He, said that, he says this is how we were created. Here we have the father who loves his son, Jesus Christ, and he pours out his love on his son, surrenders everything to him. And here we have Jesus loving the father back and surrenders everything to the father. And here we have the Holy Spirit who loves the father and loves the son and loves all of the creational work and is busy kind of inviting everyone to be part of this love relationship with the father and with the son. And he goes on and on like this simply to describe this is where we come from. This is our essential DNA. None of us was made to have a divided heart. We simply have a different design. We were made for surrendering. There is a reason for the fan culture. There is a reason for the hooligan culture. And all of these different kinds of cultures that we can kind of connect ourselves to. Of course, there is a need for identity and belonging. But there is something that goes even deeper than that which is the need to, and the desire to surrender to someone or something else. So the big question today is, what does surrender really look like? What does an undivided heart look like? And the claim today from me and even from the Bible is that it looks like this. This is a cross. And... Uh, the picture is taken by myself. I was at a monastery uh, in the mountains of Mallorca this summer uh, on a retreat. And I know when I say that, people, they look very, very suspiciously at me at Mallorca on a retreat. Yeah. <laughs> But I did. I was on a retreat and I did pray for at least five minutes a day. Uh, <laughs> and, and one of my favorite spots was actually a, a, 
um, a cliff where I was able to sit and watch that cross overlooking the monastery and overlooking the valley. And it dawned upon me that there's no stronger sign of the undivided heart of God than this cross. He was willing to do whatever it takes. He was willing to go all the way in his love for us. And I know that for some people, this symbol has become a mixed symbol. I know that some people more see like a sign of an angry God or a revengeful God. And I don't quite get it how that could be. How would you be able to make such a sacrifice? To sacrifice someone who is more dear to you than yourself for the sake of anger or revenge? It simply doesn't make sense. The driving force behind a sacrifice like this has to be love. It cannot be anything else. This is a full surrender that looks us on, on us when we see a cross like this. And David, he saw this coming. Of course, he lived before Jesus died on this cross, but prophetically, he grasped the notion of a suffering Messiah. We see this in his, several of his Psalms. And he praises God for this love that he saw that God would pour upon his creation. An example of this would be Psalm 13, where he simply says, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. The cross is the defi definition of an undivided heart because it has no alternatives. There is no plan B, and there are no conditions. Paul, he put it in this way, He says, as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no. But in him it has always been yes. The cross is, has no hidden agenda. It is only yes, God saying Yes, to us. I know for many of us, this is quite a challenge. Sometimes we have this suspicion that behind this big yes from God, there is a hidden little no. Or for some of us, we have a suspicion that it's a big no. That as soon as I kind of surrender to this yes from God, then he kind of steps in and then everything is controlled from then, then on. And then I'm kind of part in a big puzzle with no influence at all. All kinds of fears that can come to us. Where does this come from? Well, I believe it comes from the way that we tend to look at ourselves. What we are actually saying to ourselves. And I think what is true from many of us is that we do not only have a yes to ourselves, but we also have a no to ourselves. We look at ourselves in a conditional way. I only embrace myself. I only accept myself. I only love myself if I satisfy these desires, if I get this mark, if I achieve this in my life. And if not, I start to say no to myself in many different ways. And when that is the case, that becomes the way that I look at God. 
And when that is the case, that becomes the way I look at other people as well. And that becomes a crucial definition of tensions going on in my life. The good news is that the cross is not only a sign of God's unfailing, unconditional surrender to us. It's also a place of healing. As we start realizing, as we start seeing that God's yes to us is only a yes with no hidden agendas, then we start to heal on the inside. When we start to realize that we are fully loved unconditionally by Him, as we are right here and now, and no matter how our lives turn out afterwards, when we start realizing that, we start healing on the inside. And slowly we become able to embrace ourselves and embrace other people as well. How did David respond to this, this love of God? Well, in Psalm 131, we get a glimpse into David's response. He says like this, My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Isn't that amazing? That these are the word, words of a, a king, a, a worldly ruler, a guy who was one of the most prominent, powerful person of his time. This is what he says when he describes what is going on in his heart. That this was how he chose to relate to God. I have been wondering why he, he was talking about a, like a weaned child. Not that I'm an expert in those things, but why not a breastfeeding child? Um, a breastfeeding child would be totally dependent on the mother, the, the mother milk. So why a weaned child? I think David says it like this because he wants to kind of emphasize this is a free choice. I freely choose to respond to God like this. I'm not forced to do it. I choose to respond to him like this. Now, how did this play out in David's life? We see it in many ways, but I just want to mention two ways. One is that we, we see that David exercised the discipline of waiting on God. This is one of the big things going on in his story, and we've heard it over the last weeks. The big narrative of waiting is that he received the promise that he would become the king of Israel, and then he had to wait for years to that to be happening. And within that narrative, there are more small narratives about how he had to wait on God in many different situations. And it was a deliberately deliberate choice of his to do exactly that. There were times when easier solutions offered themselves. And when people around him said, David, now you have the chance to make a shortcut. Now you can get what you desire, what you dream of. Now is the time. But he refused to do it. He chose deliberately to wait on God. Why? Because that was the lifestyle he had chosen. To surrender to God without a plan B, without any alternatives. And somehow he knew that this was a secret of behind his life. And again and again he repeats in his Psalms, Israel, wait on the Lord. So to surrender to someone is to be willing to wait without a plan B. What else do we see? Well, we see that 
David was generous without conditions. Especially we see this in his worship. He worshipped without a plan B. There was only one God. There was only one to worship, no matter how life looked. So we see him actually worship himself through some very severe circumstances of his life, of his life where he was really threatened and where everything really looked dark and bad. He still kept worshiping God because he had no other alternatives. We see it in the way that he gave to, uh, to the project of building the temple in Jerusalem. David himself says, In my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. It seems like he actually gave it all to the temple without even having the opportunity to see it being built because that he knew was his son who was going to do that. And it says further on that the people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. Now, what about us? How can we respond? Are we even interested in responding to a message like this? What we see on the cross, the love and the surrendering of God on the cross, is something that speaks to the whole world, to all of the creation. How do we respond to that? From my own life and from my journey with a number of people, I know that this is sometimes really a challenge for us. Sometimes because surrendering to something means that I have to let go of something else. I was told that there is even an expression for it over here, FOMO, fear of missing out. Did I say it correctly? Amazing. <laughs> we don't have that expression in Denmark, but we have a special way of texting one another. So when we have been invited to something, we might text and say, yes, I will come, dot, dot. And when you receive an answer like this, you know exactly what it means in Denmark. It means that he or she will come unless something better turns up. <laughs> and truly, when we do surrender, we do give up on something else. That is part of surrendering. So it's actually against the culture that we live in today. But again, this is what we are designed for. It's also a challenge because we are afraid of losing ourselves. And actually, that is what we do. We do lose ourselves when we surrender ourselves to someone else. And excuse me for quoting a Danish philosopher and theologian, Søren Kierkegaard, but he's just, it's hard to get around him when you have a topic like this. When he talks about this surrendering to God, he, he said that the way into Christian faith is transitioning from one quality to another, and this can only take place by a leap. And when the transition happens, one moves directly from one state to the other, never possessing, possessing both qualities. There is a loss. And, and Soren Kierkegaard himself, he was afraid of this. He even said, I don't think it's possible for me, maybe for others, but not for me. And it was a struggle in his life. Now, Stinison, the, the Carmelite monk that I quoted earlier on, he would actually claim a bit the opposite. He would say, there's really nothing to lose. Because you only find life if you actually lose your life in that sense. You have to surrender because that is your essential DNA. That's where you come from. And it seems like Jesus agrees with both of them or they agree with Jesus. 
Jesus said, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So yes, we are faced with challenges. And yet, this life of surrender seems to be what we are designed for. It seems to be what God is looking for in our hearts. It seems that this is the main inspiration coming from the life of David. And it seems that this is the big invitation going out to us from the cross of Jesus Christ. When I was at this monastery in Mallorca looking at this cross, I bumped into a Bible verse which in many ways sums up this message. And we find it in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament and it goes like this. They will return to the land and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. And I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. During that retreat, that became my prayer. And I had to pray it over and over and over again. God, please give me an undivided heart and put a new spirit in me. It seems to sum up what, what David did over and over again. His default mode was to return to the love and care of God and surrender to him no matter what he had been going through. And sitting there at Mallorca reflecting on this led me to another reflection, and I will end by this. Um, thinking about a guy that I have uh, met on a couple of occasions, and he looks like this. His name is Andrea Crouch. And very few in this congregation would know who he is. But he was actually a prominent uh, person. And he tells you, you don't know who he is, do you? No, you're too young. Uh, he was a very prominent uh, person on the gospel stage in the 70s, 80s, and even up in, uh, into the 90s. And uh, some would say that he was actually the leader of the second wave of gospel music. And for me, growing up, he was kind of the one putting words on my spiritual life and longings. And he has some amazing texts. Uh, back in the middle 80s, I think it was, my brother and I had a chance to visit his church where he was a senior pastor. And it was quite, a, an, quite an experience. So we came to this auditorium fully packed with people and gold-plattered ornaments and ushers who were dressed in, in tails and white gloves. And, and the music was, of course, totally marvelous. And Andrew Crouch was sitting on the stage and he was sitting in this big, uh, specially designed chair, almost like a king, king throning. Uh, no, you can't say that, can you? Well, on, on his throne. I just made that into a word, throning. He was throning, actually, <laughs> over the congregation. And he was, a, dare I say, a really well-fed king. He was quite big. Uh, so it was just really an experience. But I still remember we had this feeling of something is not quite right here. And on the back of that, and I don't think it's because of our visit, but on the back of that, some stories started to come out, some really bad stories about Andrew Crouch, about abuse and um, a lot of things going on in his life, which wasn't really, was really bad. And for me, that felt, oh, this is really a disappointment. Uh, he had been one of my role models. Um, so, and it just went downhill, actually, from that, then on. Then a few years ago, I had a chance to revisit his church with my family. And um, when we came to this big parking lot, there were only like three or four cars there. And we were, we were shocked. <laughs> then we came into this big sanctuary with 
I think, could seat more than a thousand people. And only 10 people were sitting there in the pews. And I believe there were more people actually on the stage than, than in the pews. But on the stage, there was this fully professional band playing the most amazing music. So it was really a bizarre situation. And when I came in, I, re I, I noticed that there was this old guy coming in uh, as well. And he was, he was kind of bent over. He was very thin. Uh, and uh, there were stains on his clothes. And I actually thought that this was a homeless guy. And one of the ushers rushed to him and actually helped him to leave the room again. I thought it's probably because he was afraid that he would disturb the service for these 10 people sitting there. Uh, didn't really know what was going on. But then the worship stopped. And uh, the host came up and uh, asked, so do we have any visitors here today? And it was kind of, yeah. We were sitting there, our family. And then she asked, oh, is any of you a pastor? And my evil children, they pointed at me. <laughs> and she said, oh, don't you want to come up here and give us a greeting? And that was the last thing in the world I wanted to. I mean, this, is, this church was like you see it in the movies, except for no people really being there. So it was this southern gospel atmosphere. And suddenly I felt like the most boring person on the planet. And some of you would just say yes. But anyways, uh, and on the way up there, I was thinking, what on earth am I going to say to these people? I had no hallelujah, amen gimmicks that I could pull up. You know, I was really, I was really out there. But then I, I realized, well, I can talk about Andrew Crouch, what he had meant to me and a whole generation. So I did that. And as I was talking, a pianist started to play uh, in the background. And as soon as that pianist started playing, the atmosphere in the room th simply changed. It simply felt like a thick presence of God coming into that room. I felt it almost physically, and suddenly I was able to do the Southern American gospel. <laughs> Not completely, but it really helped. <laughs> uh, you should have been there. Um, but finally, uh, I sat down, and when I sat down, I saw the pianist. And he turned out to be that old man, homeless man that I had seen coming in. And then the host came up and said, we are so happy that Andrea Crouch is back with us again. So it turned out that was Andrea Crouch. <laughs> and then she said, now he's going to play a song for the first time ever. He has just written this song. And there is something amazing waiting for you. And then he played the most beautiful song, singing it with a trembling voice. But it was amazing. It was built on Psalm 23, one of David's psalms. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear not, because you are with me. And when I was sitting there watching that, I just realized this is a gift from heaven. This is a guy who has really messed up badly. But he had returned to a place of surrender. And God's answer to that was just amazing. Amazing grace. He had simply given back to him an undivided heart and a new spirit. It was an amazing experience. And he was allowed to be in that for three years before he then died. So... Can I have the band come up? This seems like an appropriate moment for that to happen. Uh, so how can we respond today? We have different stories. We have different backgrounds. 
And some of us hearing this message, we would say, yeah, that is really what I'm longing for. I want an undivided heart. I want to fully surrender to God, and I want to fully surrender in my relationship to other people. And I want to surrender to myself as well. I don't want this yes and no conflict going on in my life. But I feel powerless. I feel messed up, and I don't really know what to do about it. Well, the good news is that when we are at that place, that is the best place for us to receive the intervention of God. And what we cannot do, He can do. That is the power of the cross. It can integrate everything that has become disintegrated in our lives. It can make the no's, it can make the no's become into a big yes in our lives as well. And we believe that He's here with us today. So why don't we stand and just enjoy His presence and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to us as we sing and as we worship. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.